Welcome to the FinTech One-on-One Podcast. This is Peter Renton, Chairman and Co-Founder of FinTech Nexus. I've been doing these shows since 2013, which makes this the longest-running one-on-one interview show in all of FinTech. Thank you for joining me on this journey. If you like this podcast, you should check out our sister shows, Pitch It, the FinTech Startups Podcast with Todd Anderson, and FinTech Coffee Break with Isabel Castro. Or you can listen to everything we produce by subscribing to the FinTech Nexus podcast channel. Before we get started, I want to tell you about the many opportunities you have to reach the FinTech Nexus FinTech community outside of our main events. We do regular sponsored webinars on a variety of topics. We also produce in-depth white papers. We have advertising opportunities within our newsletters, website, and podcasts. We also do sponsored blog posts, dedicated emails, and much more. If you want to reach a senior fintech audience, then please contact sales at fintechnexus.com today. So we are continuing our series of podcasts that were recorded at Fintech Nexus USA in New York City in May. And this time it is Lex Sokolin, who is the founder of the Fintech Blueprint. He also works at Consensus. Um, we cover a lot of territory in this discussion. We talk about the uh, the acquisition of Fintech Nexus uh, acquired Fintech Blueprint recently. Um, we talk uh, about a lot of different Fintech topics. We talk about DeFi. We talk about AI. We talk about um, payments, uh, self-driving money, uh, really cover uh, some of the hottest topics of the day. Lex is one of the great thinkers in all of fintech, so I think you're going to really enjoy this episode. Well, welcome, Lex, back to the Fintech One-on-One podcast recorded live here at uh, Fintech Nexus USA. How are you doing today? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. So I want to kick it off um, by sharing a little bit about uh, our partnership. We announced it on stage yesterday. The FinTech Nexus has acquired FinTech Blueprint, the newsletter. So maybe you, I guess, describe the newsletter for a little bit and tell us about what, um, what, you, what led to this partnership. Absolutely. So the, the FinTech Blueprint is a newsletter that covers... Uh, the core of fintech topics and started looking at things like robo-advisors, neobanks, digital lending, payments technology, things of that nature. Um, and then we, we started coverage of the large platform shifts. And so you know, back in 2017, 2018, it wasn't obvious, but things like um, artificial intelligence, blockchain, and digital assets augmented and virtual reality, we started asking questions for how do these emerging themes interact with financial services? Not on their own, you know, like how great is it that Facebook has the Oculus or, um, you know, how, how Chinese tech is going to take over Western tech, but in particular how all this affects financial services. And um, it, it's we've really built out a data-driven, analytical-focused newsletter um, that's really resonated with a number of audiences. You know, so one audience that um, 
that has really enjoyed the newsletter are entrepreneurs and builders. So we see a lot of people who are building companies, whether they are fintech projects, whether they are uh, decentralized finance projects, or if they're operators and doing digital transformation at large banks. Um, they're kind of thinking about strategy to play in the world. And so that's one audience. Another audience is investors. So how do you make a decision within a strategic context of the macro economy and the technology evolution? How do you make a decision on what to bet on? Because it's fuzzy and ridiculous and right. there's weird capital markets interactions. Um, and so we've, um, we've had a lot of success in attracting attention and engagement with, um, with our material. And you know the the fintech nexus community um, we've been friendly with for for quite a while, for many years, and love the footprint of both the uh, the, the events and the engagement, as well as the digital footprint and the type of engagement that you have uh, with your readers and your community. And so one of the things that really attracted me to this partnership is figuring out, you know, how can we do more for Blueprint? How can we deepen what we do for people? How can we open up their abilities to, to build companies or to invest better uh, in a live, tangible way? And that, for me, is um, a big driver of what we're trying to do together. Right, and we, it's, it's, we are so excited about uh, what this uh, partnership can bring, but I don't want to dwell on that. I really want to get into some of the, the most interesting topics of the day, and maybe we can start with, I mean, you, you're talking about, you talked about platform shifts um, in some of the, and a lot of the content that you do are really, that you, that you put out is focusing on this movement away from the traditional way of doing finance into a more, a more digital, more real-time um, way. So maybe, I mean, maybe just start with what are some of the broader themes that you're seeing in that shift? Yeah, so yesterday on... Um in, in our conversation on stage, you know, I kind of started talking about the the current situation, which is obviously very challenging for companies and for people all over the world. And so it it can be a little bit difficult to tell the science fiction story of what will happen in the future when so many companies are struggling for cash flow, when valuations, fintech valuations are down you know, from 20 or 50 times revenue to two times revenue, even when fundamentals are still good. Um, and, and so it's, it's a tough place from which to tell the story. But at the same time, I think that a lot of that challenge is quite mechanical in the sense that um, you have the macro economy, you have the challenges to it, you have the response to those challenges through interest rates, interest rate policy, you know, inflation is finally turning down, um, there is a chance of recession, uh, and, and investors are still preparing for that. So it, it's a difficult environment, but it's, um, it's sort of, there's nothing fundamental to me about uh, being at the bottom of a cycle. You mm -hmm. know, cycles are... Um, always part of the journey. But on the fundamental side, there are things that are happening that are, I mean, just profoundly amazing. Um, and whether that is the, the economic architecture of decentralized networks, you know, the ability to run 
software at scale on open source rails for any asset class now seeing things like layer twos attached to um, to blockchains. So we have throughput that was that was promised years ago. We can execute real software, or whether that's the um, impact of generative AI on on knowledge labor and the ability to automate human judgment and integrate that into large language models. I think these things are profoundly changing, like the. the what a person is able to produce and, and how that can happen. And so those are the types of platform shifts I'm talking about, but it's not going to take away from the fact that finance is necessary and that you know it's, um, it's kind of an emergent pattern of the economy where people will always need to pay, they'll always need to bank and to lend and underwrite and take on risk, insure things, um, and then form capital through the capital markets and invest through investment and asset management. And so for me, it's, you know, the question is, how do you stay grounded in the realities of um, actual financial services demand, but then pay close and, and respectful attention to what the very innovative edge of technology is bringing? Right. I want to dig into a couple of those things there. So maybe we can start with decentralized finance and, you know, it there's been um, in the in the fintech space there's been sort of a, a movement away from embracing anything that uh, has sort of a, a, a crypto type um, component to it and you know this this could be short term hopefully it is as far as the from the fintech space but I'd, I'd love to get your perspective on you know clearly Nothing's changed in the in the underlying technology. In fact, I'm, it, it keeps developing, right? It keeps getting keeps getting more fully featured and more things that are that you can do with it. But I'm curious about what. So when you look at the decentralized finance area itself, maybe we can start there and say, what is what is different or what is better, and how are you thinking about this space now compared to you know. Over a year ago, before any of the crypto blowups happened, yeah. So I think the the first is to say that the crypto blowups, to me, there's they're not crypto blowups. They are um, a pretty interconnected financial crisis across everything. So it's absolutely true that there are things in crypto that became exposed as a result of going from a risk-on environment where money is very cheap and there's a lot of it, you know, where valuations for tech companies are at sky high and where the expectations of the future are very optimistic. And when, you know, because interest rates are low, you're not discounting those expectations. You're treating them as if they're as valuable almost as what you have today. Um, Going from that environment to a risk-off environment where you have a 5% bank account interest rate, essentially, you know, on every person's iPhone, uh, where it's trivial to earn uh, 5% interest. And in, in that transition, a number of things became exposed and broke, and exposed in the sense that... Um, cheap money chasing opportunities receded. It, it left. And without the next financing uh, or without the next set of investors, some of the sort of pyramid structures that we have, both in the, the crypto ecosystem as well as in the American banking system, uh, 
become apparent, fragile, and fall apart. So, you know, in, if you look specifically at crypto, you have a, a set of events that created a liquidation cascade, um, starting with the collapse of Terra Luna, um, then spilling over into Celsius and Three Arrows Capital, you know, companies and asset managers that were levered up and exposed to, to that event. Um, those companies couldn't raise capital. They couldn't cover, right? Because again, it, it was a risk-off environment. And that continued to open up the uh, malfeasance of FTX. Um, FTX wouldn't be in the situation that they were in if they could have fundraised or if they could plug the hole, but they did not. And so um, that exposed, again, sort of the poor behavior and risk management of their custodial activities and so on and so forth. I mean, a very similar story can be told about the collapse in American banking, you know, resulting from a very quick rise in interest rates and creating a bank run um, because the banks owned treasuries and mortgage-backed securities. Like, the, the most secure things, the American government prints, the American government prints dollars which go into consumer accounts, which go into the banks, which the banks invest in American treasuries, and then the banks are, are seized by the, by the U.S. government. So it's, you know, these pyramids are everywhere. Anyway, I'm going on and on, but I think the point is that... Um, some of this, a lot of the speculation in the crypto ecosystem was washed out, and now what remains is a lot of focus on infrastructure. And as I had mentioned, the um, the promise of what Ethereum and Web3 and adjacent networks, um, that promise that was made back in 2015, 2017, with proof of um, proof of stake, so an ESG-friendly network that doesn't use Bitcoin mining-type uh, operations, the promise that was made about transaction throughput, so processing, being able to process as many transactions as a large card network like a Visa or a MasterCard, these things are, are in place. I mean, Ethereum has uh, staking, staking you both withdraw and deposit. Uh, Ethereum has many rollups. The rollups are processing millions of transactions, um, and so I think the infrastructure is is ready for kind of the next generation of applications. Okay, so then it's ready, but it's not being adopted now by mainstream finance. What what is what needs to bring it into that forefront? What 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 needs to be done to for um, for, for the what everything has been built, what you've described, obviously that's that's a lot of work that has been done over the last many, several years. But you've got the, obviously the U.S. government is just making it very difficult for any U.S. fintech or bank or crypto company to really to operate. So how how are we going to? I mean, obviously it could happen offshore, I guess. But how are we going to bring what has been built into? traditional finance, how are we going to bring those two systems together? So they're, they're, these are my personal views, just yeah, to start off. Um, so the, the first thing is that there are two, two strategies or two ways that um, financial companies have tried to engage with blockchain themes. You know, the first is um, to save costs. I have a portfolio management system or a core banking system or you know a payment network and if only I replace 
this thing with a blockchain or with a DLT, then I will save 30% on my cost because I'm mutualizing infrastructure, industry costs, and um, uh, you know we'll, we'll have a better business as a result. And so you have enterprise blockchains, you have private consortia, you now have um, you know digital asset launched a chain with a bunch of banks, and R3 in the prior generation had done the same. And so that's one direction. Um, I think CBDCs can be kind of lumped into that as well because they're, they're um, enterprise infrastructure. Then the other direction is revenue, right? So I want to offer, there's demand from consumers and s perhaps some businesses for the crypto asset class. And I want to offer the asset class as a broker or a distributor or a lender um, to, to people who want to own it, who want to engage with it, right? And so before all uh, the recent collapse, like if you looked at things like PayPal uh, or Square, Cash App, and so on, uh, SoFi, you'll, you'll see them integrating crypto trading uh, and crypto access um, into their core offerings using Paxos or other, other companies. So these two directions are very different in their nature, and I think they're also cyclical. So when crypto is popular, you know, when Bitcoin was popular, everybody is there to trade Bitcoin. And then when that collapses, of course, nobody wants that. We just want blockchain, blockchain enterprise. And then when you realize actually nobody wants to buy your security token offerings of uh, whatever it is, laundromats in Malaysia, uh, that you can't sell to your high net worth clients, then it pivots back out. And then you have DeFi and NFTs and on-chain and OpenSea, you know, and uh, celebrities talking about board apes. And when that crashes, we're back into the enterprise world, right? So now it's um, government chains and KYC uh, layer twos and so on and so forth. So I think it's a pendulum swing back and forth. Uh, it is particularly egregious in the United States in the moment um, in terms of the regulatory climate, uh, both in the, the banking regulators as well as the securities regulators seem to have flipped their prior positions very explicitly, like in, in literal terms, contradicting their prior positions. So, and, and that's resulting in good companies finding pathways to leave the United States, which I think is absolutely insane. I mean, Web3 is denominated in the dollar. It is, US, the USD is the currency of Web3, and you know, the US is under attack on most technology fronts by other uh, global actors. You know, the AI war with China, uh, the same thing with semiconductors and so on. So it's, it's absurd to me that you would throw the baby out with the bathwater when the gift of an open source decentralized web denominated in the dollar has been given to you. Um, but I think it's a, it's a political moment and political moments pass and so we'll, we'll just have to continue to see how it plays out. Right, right. It was, I don't know if you caught um, Caitlin Long this morning uh, on the keynote stage. She was talking about, um, she was in London uh, just uh, earlier this month talking with uh, a at a big, a big four, one of the big four accounting firms, um, or consulting firms, um, that she she spoke with uh, at, at at sort of at an internal event for them, and they've built they've built a layer two, um, uh, an Ethereum layer two that um, they want to 
help promote an open public blockchain, um, and they want to, you know, they they, they want to basically get the U.S. involved with it as well. But it seems like this is this is these obviously the big four accounting firms are all U.S. based, but this is a U.K you know, a, 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 like subsidiary or branch of that that is really wanting to do this and they're wanting to build it in the UK. I mean, you, you, live, in, you live in London. Um, isn't the, 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 what's, what's, what's it like there now compared to what it's like here? It feels like the UK is much more open than the US today. I think it's a fair statement for, for all of Europe. Um, and the recent regulation... Um, coming out of Europe, MICA, which is focused on digital assets and focused on digital assets by taking the architecture of the technology at face value, you know, um, like not attempting to shoehorn um, prior regulation onto things that simply don't have that shape. You know, it's as if we, we said... You, you you can't you can't settle equities electronically because we don't see where the papyrus is. We you know the the scribe at the temple seems to not be present, uh, and so because we have not said the holy words and signed the thing with our quills, we can't settle it on these fancy computers that are made by uh, criminals and hacksters. Because why would you need a computer when you can just talk to a person live? Right. It is absurd insanity. I mean, it it there's there's no sense at all in the position of uh, refusing to understand how a thing works when you try to uh, make rules about it. And I think that's, uh, that's how the U.S. is coming off. Um, while the protections uh, and the outcomes that you want to regulate against, which is uh, you know, negative, negative experiences for consumers, capital loss, fraud those outcomes on a principles basis are absolutely important and should should be protected uh, against um, but y you have to do it in such a way as to understand like the invention uh, of blockchain how it works and what its purpose is before you try to again kind of shoehorn uh, legacy on top of it so I think in the UK um, the banking sector is a lot more cooperative with startups because it, you know it's not as large as, as the American economy, and so there's there's more incentive to cooperate. There's more incentive to do things together in a smaller market. Um, but the UK also has a lean towards enterprise. You know, I think I you know, I, I think it's a long path, and the only way through is going to be negotiating uh, regulations through the various. Political processes, that, uh, political processes that we have, you know, including Coinbase going to court. Um, I think that's a positive development because right. the, we have three branches of government and all of them uh, need to be invoked to get to a good outcome here. Right. Before we move on from, um, from decentralized finance, I, I want to talk specifically about payments because that is an area that there's a huge amount of innovation happening um, right now. Um, both in you know in the blockchain space and and just in the out, outside the blockchain space, but I I really I'm curious about there, there, there's so much 
um, waste and uh, expense built into traditional payments, it feels like it's inevitable that it's going to go away. What, what's your vision for how a payment system will operate in a, when, when, you know, when decentralized finance takes kind of center stage in that realm? Yeah, I think it's a it's a very hard question, and and people have um, various levels of expertise around payments. I think, from my perspective, um, it's important to see that there are many payment systems operating all the time. So, when you get into an Uber, you don't expect to give the Uber driver cash. You can't. Uh, your cash is uh, without value to the Uber driver. You will be kicked out of the car. Your cash is no good here. Uh, it is the wrong payment rail. Um, similarly, if you're sitting in front of your computer and trying to swipe your plastic card in your monitor, you're a crazy person. <laughs> um, and so, you know, let's bring the same logic to uh, decentralized rails. Like, if you want a payment processor that works in DeFi, you need to use a technology that is built on the same rails as the financial services with which you're interacting. Um, and so I think the, the good news is that blockchain networks are payment rails themselves. Their core capability is to uh, move value around for, for a fee that clears in the market. Mm -hmm. um, the more difficult question is to say, you know, how do you get things into that particular venue? Um, what are the on-ramps? What are the off-ramps? How do you get things on? How do you get things off? And by the way, this is a global payment rail, so every country has the same opportunity to use it. Um, and of course, no, no country has the same payment regulations or expectations. You know, so you have endless numbers of different on-ramps and off-ramps. I think Stripe just recently launched um, an on-ramp into crypto, so you can go from Stripe directly into... Uh, into Web3. I don't remember if it's through buying Ethereum or buying USDC, but you know, it, it, I think the connectors between um, the internet payment processors and gateways and uh, Web3 are the first ones to be built because these are at least digital nations um, that speak similar languages, not the same languages. I think the, the next challenge is going to be around big tech companies. So looking at Apple and Samsung and um, Google and so on that all have um, a strategic interest in their digital wallet that is not a crypto wallet, right? And it's not a neobank, but it is a wrapper for traditional financial services. And so I think there's also a tension. We, we've talked about the tension about finance and, and crypto, but there's a tension between big tech uh, as, as it exists today in its... Web2 format of large centralized companies with huge advertising revenue bases, there's a tension between that and the vision that Web3 brings, uh, which is much more person-focused. So for each person, it's, it's their data, they custody their data, it's their money, they custody their money, um, and companies don't get to access it. Companies don't get to hold it on your behalf. It's non-custodial. And so I think it, it'll be also a challenge to see how um, Web three based payments interacts with um, you know the the, distrib the large distributors, the big tech companies. As for Mastercard and Visa and the other card networks, their positioning is that they're the network of networks, and so to plug in 
yet another network is very, very natural. So, you know, for anybody that is API first or is technological first, Visa, MasterCard, Plaid, Stripe, companies of that nature, I, I, not that it's trivial, but I think it's very adjacent to their strategy to include um, yet another rail, which is um, how, the, how they would look at computational blockchains. Right, right. Okay, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about AI, and I want to go back to something you said on your panel yesterday. Uh, you were talking about self-driving money, um, and, and I'd love to kind of get how you think AI, and it's been a lot of talk at this event about AI in all sorts of places, including our opening keynote, um, Marco Argenti from Goldman Sachs had some really interesting things to say, but when it comes to finance, and you know, we, we I think you, one of the panelists said yesterday, we make, we don't make very good decisions with our money. We're not very smart about it. And uh, having a an, uh, an AI assistant for this could end up being very beneficial. But tell us a little bit about your vision there and what um, when it comes to uh, automated help with our money. Yeah, this this is also a really difficult question because AI. Um, can be applied in any part of financial services, whether it's distribution in the front, which is kind of what we're talking about when we talk about you know, financial advisors or bank branches or interactions or talking to Amazon Echo in, in natural language. That's the distribution of financial services. Or whether we're talking about AI in the manufacturing part. So we're all familiar over the last decade with machine learning inside of underwriting, right? So. Um, figuring out risks is, is very statistical and there's lots of machine learning that's been applied to that. And then in the capital markets around trading or market making, there's tons of machine learning applications there. And of course, in the middle and between the, the back and the front office, there are things like giant fraud systems like catching malfeasance. Um, and there's lots of interesting companies that have um, a machine intelligence footprint to deal at scale with sort of onboarding and KYC and things of that nature. Um, but what's going on that's interesting now, in my view, is that we've, we've had a profound breakthrough in the, essentially the Turing test. So the ability of a machine intelligence to appear human to the average person. This has happened in other parts of AI where machine vision, for example, five years ago became better than human vision in recognizing objects as people would, right? So um, you have 100 people look at pictures of cats, 96 people get all the cats right, four people get it wrong. That's kind of the, you know, because some cat might be fluffy in a particular way that looks like a corgi, I don't know. You know, and then um, machine vision got good enough that it's as good as 97 people getting the cats right, you know, and that was amazing, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't obvious to some people that that's really scary, you know, that a human sense is better performed by uh, a math algorithm or a math algorithm is able to fit mathematically around a human sense to generate the same outcome as an organ or as a brain function. Um, and so large language models, which we have now, LLMs, um, are doing the same thing, but for um, for speech generation that appears to us to carry some sort of human rational um, pattern, right? And that that 
pattern is derived from the the data set of the entire internet. So the billions of words of the of the uh, of the internet that we're constantly adding to are feeding the mathematics, which are being fit around um, what what looks to us like uh, like thinking. It's not actual thinking, but it appears to to think. You know. So the way LLMs work is they they just predict the next word in a string based on the probabilities of all the words in the English language relating to each other based on this corpus of the internet. So it's it's like um, it's not like an individual human brain. It's like the brains of all humanity um, with a math algorithm on top that's trying to replicate what the average case would be. And then you can, place, you can play with the different parameters to make it more creative, less creative, and so on. So bringing that back to financial services, I think you know, the first point is there's just going to be raw economic impact. So in the way that industrial robots displaced a lot of physical work, uh, machine intelligence robots will displace a lot of intellectual work. Uh, creativity and empathy aren't going to, it doesn't matter. We have a math equation that does creativity and empathy now. And so that's going to cause um, severe economic challenge. I mean, right now, uh, we have IBM firing 8,000 people saying, we're just going to replace this with the math algorithm that does what you do. I think robotic process automation companies like UiPath, once they've uh, integrated and plugged in this capability, uh, will annihilate the back offices of many, many companies. Um, you know, if your job is to figure out how to take the facts and input it into uh, the core banking system and make a decision on whether it's real or not, like, you just, it's not going to happen. So dealing with that economic um, hit is one thing that finance could think about, right? What are the solutions for universal income? What are the solutions for lending, for people who are out of work? I mean, these are financial problems, and they're going to for sure integrate with government solutions. So in the way that you had during COVID, um, lots of payments to small businesses to protect the small businesses from disappearing, you know, the governments are going to be forced to deal with the economic impact of LLMs. The other sort of more narrow answer is um, sort of the role of the human-to-human -human interaction in the delivery of financial services. About 10 years ago, maybe 15, we started to see robo-advisors and neobanks. And those companies um, took the mechanistic part of what banks and investment managers do, you know, make an asset allocation, make an underwriting decision, make, uh, um, and put it into software and made it self-service. Those interfaces are you know, they're, they're very, they're computer interfaces. Uh, they're not like talking to an empathetic person that cares about you. They're just buttons. Well, now, instead of buttons, you have empathy on demand. Uh, you have creativity on demand, and it can be hyper-personalized to every single individual based on their search intent, based on their uh, you know, internet footprint, whatever you like. And so I think for, for a lot of the distribution part of the, of the industry, in, in my view, we're just going to see um, large language models become 
the place where people buy financial services from. They're just going to get advice from it. Um, they're just going to be, we're going to have all these AI friends that give us all sorts of advice and financial advice will just be one of the features that they have. Okay, so maybe we can um, close with, you know, you, you've, you've painted some interesting pictures here today. Maybe um, give us your kind of, uh, like your optimistic view or your, or maybe just your view, it doesn't have to be optimistic, I guess, of what, <clears throat> what are the most sort of impactful technologies happening right now that are going to really that you'll see that you you can see in two to three years it, things are going to be very different what, what what are you looking at most closely i f i feel like the the stuff that i gave you is kind of it you know um i think the um the large language models are one um it, it's hard to tell exactly the impact but i expect to um they will have an outsize um, outsize impact in the in the way that the the mobile phone had created the mobile internet. I think the the AI interfaces will create a completely n new um, sort of substrate in terms of how we interact with things. Um, and then on on the Web three side, I think we're going to need to counteract some of this large-scale machine intelligence stuff. Like, I think we're going to need things to give us back the ability to own digital assets and digital objects, right? Because AI is kind of the extreme endpoint of social media and endless internet content. If, if you start at a point where you want everything to be free and funded by advertising, you end up with AI because you have created all this content and then you feed it into a content creator that then infinitely can create free content, right? And if we let that run, um, you, you're going to have some very weird outcomes. So I think that what Web3 offers, which is to say, okay, in this digital world, there's actually some things I own. You know, like, these robots that I'm training, I don't want Microsoft to host them on their servers. It's icky for Microsoft to have a digital twin of me that has all my logins, that is managing my money, and that can speak using my voice. I don't like that. I don't, I don't want Microsoft or certainly you know, Zuckerberg, I don't want them to have it. Um, or TikTok, right? So... And if you think I'm being silly, again, open up your iPhone and invest with Goldman Sachs through your Apple account. So if we don't want that to be the case, then you've got to take control of your own robots. And the only way that that exists today is through blockchain architecture, where you, know, you, you have an account, you have your wallet, you have um, maybe some NFT that is representing your AI agent. Um, and so I think this stuff will start to interact and you know it's hard to be precise with it because it's so science fiction but at the same time these are these technologies are here today and that's where the venture investment is going okay we'll have to leave it there lex that's fascinating you've brought up some very thought-provoking things there thanks for thanks for joining me here at uh, fintech nexus today
Thank you for having me. Okay, see ya. Well, I hope you enjoyed the show. Thank you so much for listening. Please go ahead and give the show a review on the podcast platform of your choice and go tell your friends and colleagues about it. Anyway, on that note, I will sign off. I very much appreciate you listening and I'll catch you next time. Bye. Bye.